express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. so good to be together. This kind of reminds me of the first time our family got together. We'd been very cautious during COVID. And my niece, who's four, very precocious and very emotive, runs up, grabs me around the knees, and she says, I missed you. I don't remember your name, but I really, really missed you. (laughs) So that's how I felt last week. I had some conversations with people and with the masks, and I I couldn't recall their names. So I'm, I'm very happy about that it's It's name tag Sunday. (laughs) All right. Please pray with me. Lord, we just thank you for our time together and that we can meet um, both here and streaming and however we get together, Lord, to feel your love and that we can feel your compassion, that we can be united um, under you. Uh, Just bless our time together. Give us ears to hear. Give me words to speak. Amen. All right. In case you don't remember my name, I'm Linda Burquist. I am a member of the Pearl Oversight Team, along with Chuck, Rachel, Carrie, and Mike. And you'll be hearing from some of them later in the month. Chuck, your turn's coming. <laughs> um, each August, we get to share what's on our hearts. Um, it's kind of wide open. Mike says this can be whatever you want to be. So I had read a quote by the author and poet, Brian Doyle, who says, all stories are in some forms prayers. So this is my prayer. This is the story of how we came to the Pearl, why we serve at the Pearl, and why we plan on staying at the Pearl. So like I said, I'm Linda Burquist. I've been married to Bart over there for almost 39 years. We're childless by choice. All of our parents are living, and when you get to a certain age, you have to say that, but our parents are all still alive. I'm the oldest of two daughters. I'm a performance improvement manager at Kaiser Permanente. I'm a native Oregonian, like born here at Emanuel Hospital. Uh, We enjoy traveling. Well, we did enjoy traveling. (laughs) We like being outdoors, but I don't like to camp, but I like to eat outdoors and drink wine and coffee, (laughs) drink coffee. So last week was great. It was the 20th anniversary of the Pearl, and Mike uh, kind of you know, gave a recount of where we'd been. I felt like last week we heard from the shepherd, but today you're going to hear from the sheep. So, bah. So, I'll start with how we found the pearl. We were just walking. We, like I said, we like to walk. We're kind of urban dwellers, and we saw the sandwich board out there. So, Bart and I had been attending a large four-square fundamentalist Christian church. We'd done a church plant. Uh, The pastor had been removed for embezzling funds, so we were kind of burned out, done. So we saw the sign, I Googled it, it looked normal, so (laughs) it looked normal. And so we came back. 
And uh, I just remember walking in. I, I don't remember who spoke that Sunday. Sorry, Mike. Um, but I do remember the music. And it was a lot like today, where the music started. And prior to COVID, I'm a person who maybe cries like once a year. But something just broke in me. And Bart and I both felt it, just this sweet spirit. And we just started coming back. And uh, that's been 16 years. And it's the longest period of my life that I've ever attended church. So when I was trying to pick a topic um, to share with you today, uh, I was going to call this talk shame. <laughs> but that's kind of a bummer of a title, right? So what I'm going to call this talk is learning compassion. So in a sermon recently, Ben said that we are primed for shame, and that really kind of resonated with me in my own experience. Having grown up in a conservative evangelical church, I learned shame at a really early age. So, I mean, how did that happen? You know, I was a church kid. Uh, for the first nine years of my life, we attended a Nazarene church. My parents dedicated me when I was six weeks old to the Lord. Um, we were the kind of family that was there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday. You know, there was vacation Bible school, church camp. You know, we, we did the whole nine yards. Um, in fact, it was at a camp meeting. Does anybody remember camp meetings? Okay, back in the day. Or have you seen that movie, Steve Martin movie, Leap of Faith? Kind of like that. So it was held out in Woodburn when Woodburn was still the country before there were outlet malls, and they'd erected a canvas tent, and there was sawdust on the ground, and you know, for two or three hours, hot August night, we heard about the hell that awaited us if we did not confess our sins. And then at the end, there's what's called an altar call where you're invited to come forward to literally an altar and confess your sins. And that's what I did at seven years old, just filled with guilt and shame at seven for, you know, all, all the way to the world and being desperately afraid that I would be separated from my family um, I went to that altar and confessed. Now, I'll tell you, that was just the beginning of a cycle. Uh, in fact, I remember going home that night and confessing again because I was not sure I had done it right. And again and again. Um, I, I'm seeing some head shakes, so I'm thinking that's maybe not unique to me. Um, who remembers this song? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. There's a father up above who's looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. It was acted out with that wagging, condemning finger. But, you know, here's the deal. As a little kid, I couldn't control what I saw, you know? And so God was not this benevolent savior looking down on me, but he was this person, this thing, keeping score and monitoring my behavior. He was more like big brother. Um, Shame was a big part of the discipline that I experienced as a child. Um, how many of you have ever been asked, do you think Jesus is happy with you right now? Well, I can tell you that's a rhetorical question. The answer is always no. Jesus is not happy with you right now. <laughs> so, so at the Pearl, we talk about being animated by love. But for much of my life, I've been animated by fear and shame. I'll just tell you. So maybe it's, you know. Maybe it's just me. You know, there's a whole nature versus nurture. There could have been another kid that would have heard that exact same messages and come away with a very different experience. You know, maybe it's temperament, personality. You know, I saw Ben back there. He's like, classic Enneagram one. 
<laughs> so for those who have, you, who have not seen Richard Bohr's you know, Christian perspective on the Enneagram, from an early age, ones tried to be model children. Starting back in their tender youth, they internalized voices that demand, be good, behave yourself, don't be childish, do it better. It is as if they decided even then to learn, earn the love of everyone around them by meeting expectations and being good. So regardless of your Enneagram type, you may feel the same. You, like me, may need, feel the need to earn God's love. So a lot of the strategy, I think Brene Brown talks about this a lot. Uh, a lot of my strategy for avoiding shame was to, to try to be perfect, try to be the perfect daughter, get good grades. You know, the message was clear. Sit up straight, stop planning around, don't be don't be sassy. You know, as I got older, the list grew even longer. You know, sing in the choir, be a nice girl. There were a lot of don'ts on the list. Don't swear, don't drink, by all means, don't have sex. You know, there was a lot of rules there. So by the time I was an adult, I had cultivated this image of who I was supposed to be. And I became really good at putting up walls, being stoic, wrapping myself in this kind of protective coating. Um, I'm also an ISTJ. Can I get an amen? Who's a, any, any of my... Any of my people out here, all right? And I don't think it's unique to me. I have a really close friend who early in her relationship was dating a, a guy. And we had, were coming over to their house for the first time to meet him. And I walk in the door and she grabs me and pulls me into the hall and she said, you be good. I don't want him to know what I'm really like. <laughs> so, he figured it out and they've been married like 15 years, so. So, but for me, shame and the resulting quest for perfectionism was lonely. It was isolating. It was a barrier. You know, it, it really was the thing and is the thing that keeps me from being known and knowing others. Um, I had mentioned Brene Brown. In her book, The Gift of Imperfection, she asserts, we have to claim shame or shame will claim us. And for most of my life, shame has claimed me. But Brene Brown also tells us that the cure for shame is courage and self-compassion. So, you know, why is compassion so hard? You know, as Christians, we're taught to have compassion for others. The Bible is full of examples of Christ bestowing kindness and compassion upon others. So when I selected the passage that was read earlier, um, I was trying to think of an example of somebody who was really maybe experiencing deep shame and self-loathing. And, and maybe I'm projecting, but I thought about Peter um, following, you know, his denial of Christ. And at the point in the story of John 21, he's, he's run away, you know. I imagine that he spent many sleepless nights at that point, tossing and turning, thinking what he should have done, what he could have done, what he, you know, if he could do it over, what would he do? Um, you know, there's a lot of interpretations of what this passage means, and I know that because I Googled it. Um, but what I want to really focus on is the communication between Peter and Christ. Um, you know, what happened there? I'm going to read it again. Beth did a lovely job. Thank you. I'm also going to put on my glasses. So early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said, Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. 
When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There were fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came back, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. So, as I said, I was kind of focusing on that first interaction between Peter and Christ. Um, what, what don't we see? What would you expect, maybe, if this was happening to us? Well, what I don't see is any recrimination from Christ. I, I don't see Peter begging for forgiveness. Oh, I'm sorry, I really blew it. Wouldn't that be our, our first response in this situation? There's no demand for penance or a confession from Christ. What we see is compassion. Christ comes to him where he's at. His response is nothing but enthusiasm. There's no evidence of guilt or shame. And Jesus feeds them. So it's not surprising that when Christ comes to them, it's with friends over a meal. And it's that same table that we gather together at today. So I have been learning compassion in this community for 16 years. A few years ago, there was a popular book, you might remember it, called Everything I Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Well, much of what I know about compassion and self-acceptance come from being in community at the Pearl and within a home group. We've been in a home group for 14 years, and my prayer for the Pearl is that every person who slips in late and leaves in early to avoid kind of that awkward small talk, find a home group to truly call home. Home groups are not a panacea for shame, but I can tell you what I found there. I found an opportunity to be authentic, whether I like it or not. I found a broader and deeper perspective, and I am learning compassion for self and for others. So first of all, I got opportunity to be authentic. For Chuck Sen's benefit, <clears throat> I did the math, okay? 14 years in home group results in meeting approximately 448 times. That's almost 900 hours in home group. Um, I don't know about you, but that's a really long time to fake it. So if you dare, home groups are a place to let your authenticity flag fly. So Brene Brown, again, it's funny, I've quoted more Brene Brown than gospel, but oh, <laughs> if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three ingredients to grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence, and shame, and judgment. But, Secrecy, silence, and judgment. If you put the same amount of shame in the Petri dish and douse it with empathy, it can't survive. So self-compassion begins with the ability to authentically say, I am really struggling with. So this is where I'm gonna ask you to think about what you're struggling with. I'd like you to say it out loud, but I understand this is not the kind of church where we say very much out loud. <laughs> so, Let's try it together. I am really struggling with, I'm really struggling with anger. There, I'll put mine out there first. Anybody else? You can just say it into your mouth. Nobody will hear what you're saying. So self-compassion is a form of spiritual discipline. It takes practice. It requires honesty, courage, and authenticity. And my desire is that we all really learn and practice self-compassion with each other. And like I said, it, it involves courage. Somebody has to go first. It, it really can only happen when someone claims their shame. So I know we've had times in our home group when somebody will come 
and they'll be like, sorry, I'm late. We got in an argument in the, in the car on the way here. And what's really great is like three or four people go, yep, been there. You know, everybody gets in a disagreement. So the other thing I talk about in uh, the advantages or um, the benefits of uh, home group, this sounds like a shameless promotion for home group. When do sign-ups start? <laughs> is that we can find camaraderie. Um, we can also find perspective. You know, over the years, I found out that my experience, like that thing I described to you, you know, the altar call and all that, the hell and damnation, that, that's not everybody's experience. I, I remember sharing one time, and Larry Langsdorf, who's in our group, said, I, I don't remember anything like that. I just remember being taught love. And I'm like, wow, you know, that, that's something, and I could feel that perspective change just a little bit towards organized religion. Um, you know, in community, we also find a different perspective about ourselves. There is something miraculous that happens. There's a special kind of alchemy that seems to put the right people together. I remember another home group leader saying, you know, it's the strangest thing. We've got a group of like six of us and four of us have kids that are LGBTQ. I don't, I don't think that's coincidence. Or in another group, we have several parents of, of children who are addicts or dealing with addiction. Um, I, I think that's the Holy Spirit, you know. It's, it's not a coincidence that that can happen. Um, in our home group, we've experienced loss. I mean, literally several instances of cancer, death, separation, divorces. I mean, but we've also found love, healing, prosperity. There have been weddings, births. There's been lots of singings, many, many meals together. So don't get me wrong, home groups aren't all unicorns and rainbows, as they say. People, people are annoying. Um, let, let me clarify, other people are annoying. Okay? I mean, there can be tiffs and hurt feelings, um, but, you know, in community is where we can find and build compassion together. So compassion literally means to suffer together. Um, it is defined as the feeling that arises when you are confronted with another suffering and feel motivated to relieve that suffering. So this past summer, exactly a year ago, July 25th, 2020, um, we lost Bart's brother, um, John. He was killed instantly in a head-on collision on Highway 22. Um, and over the course of the 40 plus years we've been together, I, I think we've led a pretty blessed life. This was probably the most devastating thing that had ever happened to us. I mean, it, it was in the middle of the pandemic. Nothing else bad was supposed to happen. We were in a pandemic, right? This made the pandemic look like a walk in the park. It was violent, it was sudden, and it was permanent. But I will tell you that that's where these empathetic priests, people who would already known suffering, came around us. They brought us meals and there were cards and phone calls and coffee and um, one couple, you know, we didn't eat inside because, you know, it's a pandemic, but they brought a cooler down our very steep driveway and served us a three-course meal and we just stayed up late into the night talking. And this was at a time that we were just so broken. So with that said, I'd like to just publicly say that I'm, I'm not a naturally compassionate person, but I'm learning. I, I'm learning to be compassionate. And I'd also like to say, as a faith community, we're learning compassion together. So it starts with our kids. You know, writing this reflection really caused me to think about what I had come out of. And I'm so glad and I'm so grateful that the children of the Pearl are having a completely different experience. 
um, they're, they're being goodness detectives. They're finding the goodness of God. They, they hug a pillow to feel God's love. They find God in the scent of roses. You know, at the end of every service, we pray over our children. And I'm, I'm grateful to Mindy and I'm grateful to our uh, volunteers who work with the kids and they're modeling and emulating love and compassion for our children, that they're motivated by God's love and not that fear of hell, hell that I was motivated by. I'll also say as we're learning compassion that the pearl hasn't always been the pearl. And I think, you know, Mike alluded to that somewhat last week. We've been here 16 years, um, but when we started, there, there were no women on the board. And I do remember a very distinct time when we were applying for membership. We met Mike at a coffee shop. And uh, over coffee, I, I looked at him and I said, where is the place for gay people at the Pearl? Now I'm straight, but I have a lot of friends that are gay and we have nieces and nephews that have rejected the church because of the exclusionary practices they found there. And Mike, Pastor Mike, takes a deep breath and, well, to his credit, one didn't quote from Leviticus, so <laughs> props right there. But he did look right at, at us and he just said, I don't know, I don't know. You know, how refreshing was that? But like Mike said, you know, we were fish that didn't know we were in water, is that what you said? Like I didn't, I knew women in leadership wasn't right. I knew people, being excluded wasn't right, but I was also that fish in water. You know, it wasn't a deal breaker for me at the time. Um, I'm glad we didn't leave and I'm grateful that we stayed. You know, many of our church leaders have shared how they've been deconstructing their faith over the last few years. You know, learning uh, to be compassionate for me has been slowly, and I do mean slowly, letting go of the judging and condemning things I was taught earlier in life. Over the t past really 10 years, I've really seen the pearl grow in its capacity for compassion. I've personally felt more love and acceptance, um, but that might also have to do with me letting go of some of my judging ways. Um, we see people stepping out and being accepted as their authentic selves. I've seen that burden of shame being lifted. You know, our compassion is extended into the community. You see it exhibited in our relationships with our Pearl Court neighbors, you know, and even during this uh, pandemic, somehow through Zoom, we've, we've created a community. I mean, I, I met people last week that had never set foot in this church before, and yet we feel connected, and through compassion, we feel included. So I'm on the oversight team. You know, we're starting to look at our, our three-year vision again, and I can tell you that love and compassion are embedded in, in everything we do. We're grappling with issues of equity and justice in the church. You know, we're looking to areas where people are suffering and marginalized and are seeking means to bring healing and inclusion. We are striving to become the broadest definition of us. So at the Pearl, you'll often hear this phrase, there's a place for every part of you. And it's true. It's a place where we can be our authentic selves. For me, it has been a place to learn and practice love, acceptance, and compassion. So I will close with a prayer for compassion. This comes from the National Cathedral. If you'd close your eyes. God, you are present in everything, in the universe, in creation, in me, 
and all that happens to me in my brothers and sisters and the church and in the Eucharist everywhere. God in the glimmer of a firefly, God in the fiery light of the sun, the early church taught that your face could be glimpsed in all creation. As we look out the window, go for a stroll, watch the slow unfurling of the seasons, help us to see clearly your presence, leading us to walk gently and compassionately in the world. Amen. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.